0: Welcome to Coogan Knows the Law, where we untangle the knots of complicated legal questions and break down legalese into plain English. I'm attorney Jim Coogan. In today's episode, while Coogan knows the law, he does not know political journalism, commentary, and punditry the way that Ben Jarosky does. Uh, Ben has been a fixture in the Chicago political landscape and the journalism landscape for almost 40 years, I think, maybe 40-ish years. I can get a clarification on that from the man himself. He is a prolific writer for the Chicago Reader. Ben had been explaining issues in the political landscape for decades, but then decided to do it on a microphone. So he now hosts the Ben Jarofsky Show in addition to his regular column with the Chicago Reader. Welcome to Cougar Knows the Law, Ben Jarofsky.
1: uh, Thank you, Jim. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, up is down, down is up. Usually I'm welcoming Jim Coogan to my humble little podcast. Uh, and I want to give a shout out before we get started to uh, young Dennis, Dr. D, uh, who will be producing uh, the final edit here, Jim's um, show. Dr. D was the one who got me to in front of a uh, microphone. And uh, I have not stepped away since he made that introduction uh, it, six years ago. Damn, six years ago.
0: Well, Uh, he must uh, have realized that you knew how to talk.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I got the gift to gab, Uh, Jim. I can't believe it took me this long in life uh, to get in front of a microphone because, as you know from having been on my show so many times, I love talking. I love listening to people. And, um, I mean, like, I do this when I'm not in front of a microphone, Jim. I'm on the phone obsessively talking politics sports movies uh, with dr d comedy i mean just i love talking i love listening to what people have to say i learn from them uh so yeah it took me a while to to find what i should have been probably doing 40 years ago but here i am
0: well not for uh Not for nothing. You did actually, you had plenty of explanations of complicated matters, so this is something that you were doing long before you did it on a microphone. But uh, I thought that given the tenor of this show, you and I talk semi-regularly on your show about legal issues. They tend to gravitate towards the former president. Uh, He has found a way to, uh, has not exhausted the different ways that he can complicate his own life in the civil and criminal courts. But I thought that it would be interesting to talk to you about, even pre-Trump, where along the way, as you got into politics and you were writing about Chicago politics for the reader, where along the way did you first start to pick up on how significant legal issues were? Because you didn't go to law school. And uh, and although I hear you you offer lots of uh, interpretations of legal issues on your show, sometimes when I'm not a guest, I listen and I'm like, okay, hopefully this will make sense. And then sometimes I'll even get a shout out that it's something where you need to bring me on and talk about it. And I appreciate yeah. that. But there must have been some point where you re- recognize just how significant the court systems were uh, as they affected people's day to day lives. So do, do you is there a point in time that you remember that happening or did it just sort of happen over time?
1: Uh, yeah, no. I re- well, there, I don't think there's one specific moment that I remember. Uh, but uh, shout out to my mom. Uh, she was my mom was in the courtroom dramas. So, Perry Mason. I guess it starts with Perry Mason. We used to watch the Perry Mason show with Ray- the old one with Raymond Burr, and uh, which was just so classic. I mean, it just illustrate like the things I remember from Perry Mason resound to this day. Like that moment, I, I don't know if we've ever saw a Perry Mason show, but at the moment, he's like brilliant cross examination would like break some uh, witness down. Uh, and it, there would be a moment in the courtroom where someone would just stand up and say, I did it! I did and it, Of course, nothing like that ever happens. In, I don't know if it ever happened, but it very, very rarely very, very happens. Uh, and um, so, yeah, it was Perry Mason uh, as, um, in terms of fictitious uh, law, the, the first court case that I think that is really blazing in my mind uh, that really um, I started obsessively following many many years ago the chicago uh, uh was well ultimately it was the chicago 7 trial judge julius hoffman the radicals uh, who had been uh, charged with a conspiracy by uh, the uh, nixon justice department back in 19 i think it was 1969. Uh, i followed that one obsessively and uh, the lawyers in that uh, drama for my uh, very young mind became heroes of uh, William Kunstler, Leonard Wineglass, uh, the way they dealt with the uh, the witnesses, both cross examination and direct examination, uh, how they provoked D- Judge Julius Hoffman uh, to overplaying his hand, if you will. I just I soaked that up. I was only thirteen years old, so uh, that was probably the first case that I followed. And then after that, Jim. It's like any kind of high-profile case, I followed it. So, any it, there's always something in Chicago, and there's just it was the lawyers that drew me. I'm just like the array of colorful lawyers in the city of Chicago. I'm just thinking of Philip Corboy. I don't know if uh, your listeners will know that's a name from the past. This guy was one of the great courtroom lawyers. He could talk to a jury like nobody else. When I moved back to Chicago in the early 80s, he had this famous case uh, where there was a judge, it's vague in my mind, Jim, but it was a judge uh, who wanted to go to, I'm not making this up, he was in Chicago, he was flying to Kentucky, I want to say, to watch uh, a stud horse inseminate another horse, and he couldn't make it. I'm not making this up, he couldn't make it, he got bumped, and so he sued the airlines, and Corboy, Corboy gave this incredible closing argument. Won this guy, I forget how much money um, for a, a verdict. And I didn't even know if it was reversed on appeal. I just remember that papers had a field day with it. Just everything about that case, the papers had a field day with it. But in particular, it was the way Corboy addressed the law the jury and got them to uh sway them and brought them along and made them feel compassion for this judge. And then there was a guy named Jerry Spence. This is another great trial lawyer who did the care um he was the one with the hat. Uh, I don't know if you remember Jerry Spence. He was out of Wyoming, uh-huh. like a cowboy, he would walk in a court and he would take his 10-gallon hat off and, like, throw it. And it goes, I'm here. And he put his feet on the desk, and he had cowboy boots. I thought these guys were like, you know, they're like baseball players or something, you know, larger-than-life superstars. And so, yeah, there's just a whole array of them. And I was caught. And I, I never wanted to go to law school. It seemed like too much work and not that good, you know, with tests. And uh, so it would have been a real struggle if I gone to law school. Uh so I was never tempted in any way to go to law school, but I've been following law, following courtroom dramas for as long as I can remember.
0: Well, Corboy is uh, the, basically the godfather of injury law in the state of Illinois, or one of them. Uh, so I certainly benefit from his legacy here. And Jerry Spence, I've, I've watched videos of his, I've read some of his books, um, he's preeminent in the uh, trial lawyer community as, as one of the people who more than anything uh, if, if you hadn't known this part of his method that he tries to teach to attorneys that he's mentoring is to basically live inside your client's skin, understand really where they are, who they are, what they've been going through. And if you can channel those things, then you're doing it genuinely, that's what sells the case. That's where the the jury can understand what your client's actually going through. And I think he would say this, and I think I've read where he's explained it this way. They need to know that you really mean it, that you are genuine, that you're coming from a place where you're asking for millions of dollars for somebody, uh, that it seems like that's the only right answer because they know how serious and sincere you are about it. Um, Because I guess, you know, they... There's all sorts of different schools of thought about juries, but they can smell BS from a long distance away. And if you're on the side of the case where you're asking them to do the hard thing to transfer money from one side to the other, enter that judgment. Like that's the uphill battle. It's that's the, we've got the burden. So Jerry is uh, yeah, he's, he's, he had an incredible career, taught a lot of attorneys. I didn't get a chance to meet him personally, but he used to run a trial school out in Wyoming where attorneys would stay in Jackson hole and, Learn things from him, and they would all sing the praises of how meaningful of an experience that was. So, yeah, I've tried to get some of those lessons through the videos and the the books that they'll have. But uh, it's interesting that those are those are civil attorneys too. Those are not criminal lawyers. That those are the first two that that you think of uh, as far as kind of, of icons. Yeah. I think it that's interesting.
1: yeah. Uh, uh, Sam Adams. There's there's a lot of criminal defense lawyers in mm-hmm. Chicago that are legendary. You know, and the thing is, is that um, back in the day, uh, this is, I'm speaking of a long, a time long gone, Uh, there were columnists for the Chicago newspapers who were dispatched to news events to write them, not as news stories, but as columns, little slices of life. This is an art that has largely disappeared, so uh, this, this is the kind of journalistic writing that I really tried to emulate when I was starting out. Uh, You don't see this anymore. So I'm I'm speaking of like a time long ago. You see a little bit in the sports pages, a little bit, but not even there anymore um, where you just give people like you're trying to capture the essence of what uh, happened as opposed to literally what what went down. Uh, You look for an angle that the would might be missed by uh, the, um, just the 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 basic beat reporter coverage of it. So the most cl- famous example of this is Jimmy Breslin uh, going down the, the the legendary columnist going down uh, to, um, to covering the um, uh, John F. Kennedy's assassination, writing a story about the grave digger. This is like a classic camp. So you so you just uh, you're just not covering the story, but you're capturing the essence of the moment. Uh, the person who dug the grave where John Kennedy was buried. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm leading up to is, back in the day, they would dispatch these types of columnists to court cases. And they would try to write, they would do a story about invariably they would be drawn to one lawyer or another, because this is something that lawyers are really good at. If well, a certain kind of lawyer, giving reporters what they need. Sure. The reporters need something to put it in the paper. You got to have, so like, I think part of the reason I like lawyers so much is like lawyers understand that lawyers need something too. They need publicity for their case. Sometimes some lawyers go, I never argue my case in the paper, which is always I laugh. Dan Webb right now for Pat Fitzgerald, which is a case, but by the way, I may bring you on my Uh show to discuss uh, totally is arguing his case in the paper at a freaking press conference yesterday. But if the situation was different, Jim, you know, as well as I do, Dan Webb, well, I never ever you my case in the paper. Oh, what was that orchestration that you just put on?
0: Uh, <laughs> those cameras just happened to be at that press room while he was standing in front of a podium. Yeah. <laughs> he walked in and all of a sudden they were there to talk to. Well, it seems like this is a perfect confluence between what you do and what you've been doing for so long. Because as you gave those examples from from the beginning of the show... There were no video cameras, so you were learning about those things through those kinds of columns. That's how you understood the color. I mean, you were giving examples of visual things that Jerry Spence would have been doing. You wouldn't have been there to see it. So clearly somebody illustrated that through this sort of uh, insider column that's kind of giving you the visual, giving you the real moment, making you feel like you're there watching it happen in the room.
1: Absolutely. This is long before was, uh, cameras in courtrooms. And so the, the kind of reporters or the kind of columnist who uh, wrote these scenes uh, were writing something as though they were the camera. They were the eye of the camera. Uh, and so just the physical dimensions of Jerry Spence will concentrate him for a while. He's a tall man. He's imposing. Uh, and he, he uses that to affect, uh, and, uh, particularly with that hat, which makes him even taller, even more imposing. Uh, And then the the act of throwing the hat uh, on the table is this way of saying, this is my home. I control this domain. Uh, And it's, yeah, there was some writer in that courtroom who captured that like almost like in a, a novelistic way. And I was a very impressionistic reader, and I was absorbing it, and it's it's it, I see it in my mind's eye right now as I'm describing it. Uh, and uh, even though I wasn't even there, I wasn't in the courtroom. Um, I wasn't in the courtroom for the Chicago eight or 7, Chicago seven trial. But, uh, and I never saw, I'm trying to say, I don't think I ever saw Phil boy in action, but I've read so many stories about him. Uh-huh. got to interview him a few times. You did. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I interviewed uh, Phil Corboy a few times for various reasons he was
0: he, does any one of yeah. those interviews stick out do you remember you have any specific memories about him
1: i um yes uh he was a very courtly uh man um and uh he was a very like a uh, very very generous kind of guy with his words uh he was one of those um people that i've interviewed from time to time who made a point of saying how much they appreciated the question and uh uh he was also a master of saying exactly what he wanted to say which is itself an art uh that the really good lawyers the really great ones have mastered you know and it's like i we always joke in the show about how politicians never directly answer a question what they always do is they answer the the question they they give the answer they want to give regardless of what the question is and some are more obvious about it than (laughs) others and it's embarrassing uh phil corboy was brilliant at just a straight flow narration and he would just seamlessly transition from the point that you asked him about to something else and you would just follow him along that transition wherever you went so you almost forgot where you were uh and you forgot that he, he or maybe he didn't forget but did not matter that he didn't answer the question in the first <laughs> place um but i would I, I asked him i interviewed him about uh political stuff he was also very um, had a hand in uh selecting judges i don't know if you know that but uh he was part of the slate making process for the democratic party uh along with ed burke And, um, uh, so, uh, that's, I think that's the last interview I had. Mm with
0: Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, legacy that we're still kind of dealing with in this county. Um, the, the political influence on judicial selection and appointment, although it's, it's, you know, I think we've actually debated this or talked about this concept before. Illinois has elections for judges. And then of course, when there's vacancies, those, seats are filled by appointment. Other states have completely appointed judges, but the notion that there's no politics involved in it is, is really kind of, I mean, I think that it's a, it's a thing that people would like to believe that was true, is that judges are above politics somehow, but uh, at least personally, I don't know if I really believe that. Um, but let's talk about that for a second now that we've kind of jumped into the topic. In your observation over the years what, what what do you think is good bad or or what are the what are your observations just in general because uh, you're in in Cook county compared to any other part of this state, of course, the volume of judges is so much greater the the population is so much greater it's controlled by one political party there there's no Republican slating for judicial appointments in this county uh, and you've seen you've covered this as uh, as a columnist, I'm sure. So, what are your thoughts about that system?
1: About judges and uh, the concept of objectivity? Um, I don't. I, you and I've had this conversation uh, in very specific cases. Uh, personally, I uh, um, I do not believe that there's such a thing as uh, objectivity. Just. Raw objectivity, like people are, remove themselves from themselves when they're confronted with um, the specifics of a case. I'm talking about judges now, not talking about reporters writing. So I think that judges try to be absolutely as fair as they, they can be. I think most, I would give them the benefit of the doubt in saying most judges do. Um, but I don't think any of them can completely divorce themselves uh from the notions that they brought into the courtroom and uh in other instances and we've talked about this a lot i do believe that judges are agents there are some judges who are just absolute agents for political movements uh and are using their power to uh um, help those political movements abet those political movements i see it i believe that the clarence thomas is like perhaps or samuel Alito right now are the two most obvious examples of that Uh, scalia was another example of that uh and uh uh brett kavanaugh to a certain degree brett kavanaugh was a political hack
0: well, Brett Kavanaugh was a, a, it was a politics animal in the first place. Let, let me, let, let's dive a little further back, though, because you've got a better historical knowledge of this than I do. I know I'm aware of what happened with the Robert Bork nomination during the Reagan administration. Was there a time, maybe before that, when Supreme Court nominations, and now I'm talking about United States Supreme Court nominations because they're made by the president and then confirmed by the Senate, was there a time where, there wa- where it didn't feel as political? That you can recall? I,
1: I, no, see my, it's pretty pretty much been political my whole life. Uh, It's gotten more and more political. So for instance, one of the uh, earliest memories I have were movements by Republicans to oust uh, William Douglas uh, from the Supreme Court. I was a kid and it's so funny, you know, but I was an obsessive political junkie. Might have been my whole life. So I remember impeach Douglas efforts. Now, William Douglas is a name uh, that goes back to the 60s. He was an appointee of FDR. Uh, He was pretty like a radical in many ways. Uh, By today's standards, he'd be a radical. He also had a pretty unconventional life. I think He was in 80. His wife was like 30 or something like that. What a colorful character he was. Uh, and uh, but he had he was too liberal, you know, for the right. Uh, and um, I remember Strom Thurmond denouncing some Democratic judges, particularly on civil rights matters, uh, appointees. So it's there's always been some element of politics in it. Uh, Bork the Bork case was the one that pops to my mind as where it became like a political campaign you know uh it's become it that's sort of a template that's followed from pretty much every single judicial nominee or supreme court judicial nominee i should say uh and uh, so now i wonder did the dems overplay their hand on that that's a discussion and debate that goes on all the time i think about it um but i can't so really Jim, we're talking about something, a process that's now over 40 years old, almost 40 years old. Nearly, yeah. Uh, so it doesn't, you know, once the, the television cameras were in there, you know, I think it was just a matter of time before uh, it became a political circus and a carnival. Uh,
0: and was that TV the one I, that, was that the first that had regular televised hearings or were there a couple before that?
1: I, I can't recall. I, I'm pretty sure that somebody somewhere was televising earlier nominations but that was the one because of the dramatics of it all that became like a must watch TV. That was my, my memory. I could be, I mean, if you go back like the Watergate hearings of the early seventies, uh, which was much watch TV was, um, but that wasn't a judicial hearing, but that, you know know what I'm saying? That's, that's like, as our generation proceeded, the, the notion that the activities of these senators would be worthy of a whole nation following uh, and that kind of evolved into the great judicial battles of the eighties uh, and the nineties and to where we are now. So that's my, my, my general sense of it.
0: So you, you started your originally radio show, was that in 2017? I think cause the first time I came on the show was me, I'll remember it cause it was the first time I went on a radio show. Uh, I was a little bit nervous when I walked in there the first time I will, I will, I'm not afraid to admit, but, uh, it, so it, you basically started right at the beginning of the Trump administration, with yeah. your on the, your live radio show. So the question I had about this was, did you have any conception? I mean, I, I'm sure you knew that it would be a, an unusual presidency, but did you have any conception how much time you would be talking about and thinking about constitutional legal issues before you started doing it? Because I, I, I mean, it, I think. Even when I wasn't on the show, it's almost like you had to talk about it every single day.
1: Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, d- I didn't. I actually never thought about it. Um, so, no, I never, it, it never occurred to me that that would be such a big part of my life. But in retrospect, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I mean, it could easily have been the, the case if I had been in front of a microphone in the 90s. Uh, it could have been a case. I mean, the law is so intertwined with politics. I I don't believe you could separate them. And um, so, like I said, I don't believe judges are completely independent of the political world. Every single uh, major case of our lifetime has been tied to politics in the most general sense of politics. Brown v. Brown. I mean, just the whole evolution of this country's attitude toward integration and the attitude of separate toward, uh, but equal, like the, the realization that that's a fraud, that that doesn't exist, that that's just a, a fancy way of covering up for any unequal system. That's, to me, that's like a political realization as much as it's a legal realization. And so they draft a legal document to support a political document. And that's what I say to you all the time. These are all political Views and they just use the law to get what they want politically. That's this is a classic Ben Shapiro, Jim Coogan conversation. <laughs> uh, and um, I don't like the politics of Scalia, or Alito, or Thomas, or Kavanaugh. I don't. I I I think they're helping destroy our country. Their political view, uh, and so I don't believe that they're. Acting out of principle. I I don't believe at all. Oh my God. I, what I love doing when Jim Coogan comes on the show is pointing out the inconsistencies of these Neil Gorsuch. You know, I the last time you we were on, I went on a rant about Neil Gorsuch and you know, and how every word is important. He's, I'm a textualist, and every word in the constitution hasn't been regarded. Except for when we get to abortion or something. I don't Oh, except for this, you know. Uh, and by the way, I say this: if you are a textualist, then you got to kick Trump off the ballot. And they're never going to do that in a million years. You know that, Jim?
0: You're talking yeah. about the Fourteenth Amendment now.
1: Yes, absolutely. Wasn't it you? Were you the one who came on? The, no, it was a David Ferris. It was a—he's uh, not a lawyer, but he he's has my obsession with the law. I—I <laughs> have I, since read. Um, now we're on a tangent with a tangent. The Federalist Society president backed off from uh, his, these guys are so classic, his original assertion that, of course, Donald Trump has to be kicked off the ballot because it's an obvious violation of the 14th Amendment. Now he's like, well, you know, they never say president in that list on the 14th Amendment. You know what I mean?
0: It's true. It doesn't say... It doesn't say president, but it does say office holder, and it does say, it refers to people who took an oath. So I think Uh, uh, Professor Ferris knows quite a bit about the the Constitution. Those are good shows that you guys have done together. Yeah, so my point is, is like,
1: I think if I, the 90s, I would have been obsessed uh, talking about the uh, Ken Starr impeachment effort. That I find fascinating to this day. And then there's the cases that don't involve politics. The O.J. Simpson case, I think Johnny Cochran Is one of the greatest trial lawyers of all time. Um, I believe that what he did in that case, if you were going to list, just take your emotions out of it. Just take your emotions out of it, okay, and just concentrate on the job done by the trial lawyer. Not whether you wanted him to win, not whether you wanted him to lose. Just think of it as a sporting event, if you could. Uh, That was one of the greatest trial performances of all time, to put... The prosecution on uh, trial to flip the switch. O.J. Simpson is not on trial. The entire criminal justice system of Los Angeles is on trial. Wow, Cochran, you are really good, you know. And so I would have been talking about that obsessively uh, for my own. Just down, I mean, there's so many. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if you and I had access to a microphone in 2000? when they came up with that cockamamie ruling that <laughs> got off the counting in Florida. Uh, so I would, yeah, I to answer your question, I just the way I view the world, I would be talking about courts, judges, rulings, principal, trials, trial lawyers, regardless.
0: Well, yeah, I think especially because so much of it was televised, the nation got to witness that that, Johnny Cochran performance was like Michael Jordan during the 98 finals or something like that. I mean, it didn't hurt that he was able to put a police system in Los Angeles that deserved to be put on trial for a variety of reasons. But the irony is they didn't really apply to O.J. Simpson because he was friends with a lot of police officers. He was friends with the establishment up until that all happened. So that was more of a, it was sort of a weird juxtaposition looking back that there were plenty of people who got railroaded by the Los Angeles police that didn't have Johnny Cochran there to defend Absolutely. them and weren't lucky enough to have someone like Mark Furman be a lead investigator in the case who became a perfect foil villain. But listen, the trialer has to work with what they have. And honestly, you know, if he, if he wasn't creative enough, Maybe the world wouldn't remember Furman as the the villain in the case because all he was, in theory, all he was doing was gathering evidence. But they made some missteps, and Lord knows the the glove test in court was one of the worst missteps you could possibly have. Trying to have the guy try on a glove that's already dried out with a glove on his hand, and he already has large hands. So um, it's uh, yeah, I it, know. I'm sure it would have provided an, an endless amount of fodder. And I mean, that was, of course, one of the cases that pushed court TV in, into yeah. people's consciousness and and became something that uh, caused everyday people to pay more attention to these high-profile cases. Um, by the way, little plug for another Coogan Knows the Law episode. In the Wrongful Death episode, if you want to click on it after this show, we talk about the O.J. Simpson civil case and talk about wrongful death that the Ron Goldman family filed against Mr. Simpson. Um, so that's just a little aside. Um, you know, as you go on that rant, it occurs to me there have been times since Trump took office where it feels like we're just constantly going from one, quote unquote, constitutional crisis to the next. And you you think to yourself, is the system that precarious? Is it is it is it so fragile that one bad actor with certainly with a lot of support, he's, he had the whole party united behind them at one point. Now it's kind of fracturing some more. Uh, how could it be so fragile? How is that possible? Because you, you kind of uh, take for granted that America is this established place, but from a longer perspective, country's only 240-something years old. And if you go back and study these different stages in history, what you realize is it's more just gauzy nostalgia to think that there was some very calm period in American history where everyone just took What the Constitution meant and had a consensus as to things like women's rights or equal rights between black and white people or uh, just the rights of minorities in general, whether they were black or whether it was because Italians were considered an outcast minority at some point or Irish need not apply Um, or the constitutional crises throughout the 1860s or the 1880s or the fact that Franklin Roosevelt decided to run for a third term when nobody had done it before but there wasn't anything in the constitution that stopped him and he got elected. So then you could argue, Hey, that's the will of the people. What should govern here? The people decided to elect him. Now we have a provision that would prohibit that. But um, maybe it's a good reminder that as crazy as it's been for the last six or so years, there's always a lot at stake. Uh, I mean, there's always a place to be engaged as much as it can be exhausting. Sometimes that leads to my next question for you. For someone who tries to be engaged in local politics in the city of Chicago, county politics, because they have such an influence on Chicago, Illinois politics, because that, of course, influences this city, but the whole state and this state has such a unique role in this part of the country. Um, Like when you have your shows where you're bringing on Terry Cosgrove to talk about abortion rights. And now you've become a national political commentator as well. Where do you find the energy to stay engaged in all these issues because I have also listened to some of the, the really enjoyable shows where you were talking to the guys who did hoop dreams too. Obviously you've got some art, all these other artistic interests, but where do you find the energy not to be exhausted by the politics that you try to keep up with?
1: Uh, you know, I I, 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 I can't even get the words out.
0: I don't know if it's possible folks, but I might've stumped Ben Jaroski. <laughs> he can't get any words out.
1: No, because I'm trying to, uh, it's, it's like all I do. You know, I mean, uh, there were phases of my life when my kids were young and uh, like these are phases of my life that that people who know me as a a writer or a journalist or a podcast uh, show host have no idea they exist. But I was really involved in uh, sports, local sports coaching. I was involved in helping raise my kids you know and the intricacies is helping out at the school and going on field trips and helping teachers grade papers and uh you know my point is is like while i was doing that (laughs) i was just i always stayed on top of it i'm obsessed with politics obsessed with sports i just i don't even it's like when i'm done talking to you Having this conversation, I'm gonna go downstairs and uh, I'm gonna read I haven't read it yet, uh, the business section of the New York Times, uh, while I eat a sandwich. then we'll go lie on the couch. I'm gonna take my phone out we'll see what's the latest in the washington post what's the latest in your time and i'll probably see a story that oh this is for coogan and i will email it to you i'll see a story oh this is for monroe anderson's got to see this i'll send it to him maybe i'll see a comedy store oh dennis dr d will love this you know and this just what i do i'm constantly doing it i don't know the days before the phone it would be i would uh before stories were on phones uh-huh. clip articles out of newspaper i have nope I have um notebooks filled with clippings of articles that I ah, this is how I can file this. Sometimes I would I didn't even bother clip pasting it in the notebook. I just put it in a folder. It's just just what I do. This, I've always done this since I was like twelve, and um, you know, there's a, there's so much in the world I don't know. Like, I, I really don't know anything about phones. And, um, <laughs> you know, I need, like, I'm a bull ticket holder. So I have to send out the tickets to my friends who are part of the package. And so I had to call my wife, help me. Oh, I'm so nervous. I boomer panic. So, like, the things I don't know would be so astounding to people who just take them for granted that they know. It. Like, GPS, I still haven't figured out how that works. Uh, but, man. You want to talk about politics. You want to talk about the law. You want to talk about sports. You want to talk about education. You want I mean, this is what I do, Jim. This is what I've been doing forever. Or I'll be doing this as long as I can. and It's not even like consuming energy. You do it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I, I do it when I'm lying on the couch.
0: <laughs> well, so uh, just to dig a little deeper, though, is it an interest in just what's good and bad for people? Is it, is it an interest in is the world working the right way have you ever thought about what really moves you you know because there's something on a deeper level i know you've talked more than once about the influence your mom had on you and in driving you towards paying attention to political things and news articles and so on
1: yeah i um i mean uh, my mother had a huge impact on me uh she was she was really into the news as well. So like all the, like I Watergate hearings, I watched with my mom uh, and she was very passionate. Like the way I am, that I am just, that's how she was. And uh, the thing that my, I learned from my mother, uh, which I I feel almost every day, well I, I, t- I just have already, t- I've given like two or three examples of it in this particular conversation with you is what people say and what they do. And my mom was a big student of the inconsistencies, you know of what people say and what they do. Uh, and um, so much that what drives me, like if if you use, if you use law, if you use judicial rulings, If you use bills that you propose in order to benefit yourself and you pretend there's a larger principle out there, that really gets me. You know what I'm saying? What fraudulent. You know, it's like Mm. you're just trying to make Mm. more money. And that, uh, you know, so Donald Trump, for instance, that I mean, this is a guy, it's all a bit about it's easy with Donald Trump. He's. Out there it's all about Donald his this his current fraud trial which I find fascinating where he has the two sets of books uh, and now he's arguing that it doesn't matter if you have two sets of books you could say whatever you want it's it's all irrelevant and he's got 40% of the country like nodding their head that yeah it doesn't matter whatever you want Donnie and I find that I just I find that so wrong You know i i I don't think we can have a healthy society if 40 or whatever percent it is of the country believes that it's okay to have two sets of books i don't believe any person in this country would accept two sets of books on a business transaction in which they were on the wrong end of it they would be outraged by it okay but here it's okay he's donald trump i don't believe him even though the evidence is right there in their face so that's what I guess that so motivates me just this obvious examples of uh, duplicity, lying, deceit
0: well in his defense saying that it's okay is is what he really thinks because he has gotten away with that for so long uh, but I think that's probably why you also get you'll occasionally point out how you're getting yelled at by your lefty friends or by your centrist friends because uh, you're not you are an equal opportunity principled person. I, uh, you know, at least what you're willing to call out, which I appreciate because if you only call out those who you politically oppose, that doesn't really do any good either. And that doesn't come with much credibility. So uh, I think it's worthwhile to be able to say, look, even Michael Joseph Madigan or somebody who you would agree with on some issues, if they're doing things for self serving purposes, you weren't afraid to call that out either. Well, the most
1: obvious case right now is uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson and his uh, Garda World c- contract for Tent City, uh, which we I talk a lot about um, on on my podcast. I'm very, I'm very critical of him for many, many reasons. I watched the left's response. So there's some parallels between how the left responds to this and how the right responds to Donald Trump. And uh, I know I'm going to get all my lefty friends mad at me when I say this, but they engage in filibustering. So rather than call him out for this contract, they'll start off with, uh, well, he, this is the example of when you have like a really bad choice uh, based on policies, and then they'll launch into a, a explanation of the policies, avoiding what he did and so they'll go back to beating up the people they like to beat up and they'll avoid the fact that this contradicts absolutely everything that they supposedly believe in and so why did he do this well i personally believe he doesn't have command of the government right now of the city of chicago and this is like a desperate move uh that's what I personally believe. And uh, he's got to get command of the city government. He's got to have a housing commissioner. He's got to have a planning commissioner. He's got to put someone in charge of building. If you want to, and you you have to have a strong connection to Washington to get the federal funds in, you have to be on the same page as J.B. Pritzker. You got to get your act together. You got to get organized and focus. It's not, I, I mean, I well, I always say it, it's not hard, but I understand it's work, but, He's got to do it. So I don't want to read a filibuster about the history of everything in the universe to avoid dealing with the fact that this is, he had five months to do something different than this. Mm-hmm. And so my lefty friends are really mad at me right now, Jim.
0: <laughs> well,
1: what am I going to do,
0: man? I, I just,
1: I can't sugarcoat tent city. Uh,
0: do you think that this is an example? Cause you know, in, at least in my lifetime, the the Richard Daly, the younger was mayor for as long as I could remember, and then followed by a Washington insider in uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel, but the last two mayors really no well Brandon Johnson was a county commissioner before he took the or before he won this seat, but not nearly the same level of political experience or political connections. So to something you just raised about whether or not he's got the right. Communication with Washington or with the state of Illinois is it a function of that? Uh, I guess lack of connection and lack of network, but then also combined with the city just being so, I guess, just so much inertia, and that the that things to, that the city leans towards these kinds of solutions, or what do you suppose is is the reason? Because we saw this phenomenon with Mayor Lightfoot. I guess, or maybe that was just an inconsistency between things she promised and the way that she actually governed—more like kind of a centrist, uh, you know, like a like an attorney, like we talked about, like a corporate lawyer.
1: Okay, so I let's put this: the, the specific challenge that Brandon Johnson is facing right now with uh, busloads of Venezuelan immigrants. Being dispatched to Chicago by a MAGA governor in Texas is something that neither ROM nor Daly could even envision. So, how they would, I talk about, I ask my um, journalistic friends this all the time, and I've not really heard a good response. How would ROM handle this? How would Daly handle this? Um, I got a feeling for how they would, but since they had nothing like this, it's hard to say. So for Brandon Johnson to handle it, staying true to the values of the movement that launched him, it would mean using this as an opportunity to put Chicago people to work who need the work. Using this as an opportunity to promote affordable housing, good, safe, solid housing for everybody who needs it if possible. And doing that in such a way as to, man, benefit communities that have been long overlooked. These are all things, like housing the poor, affordable housing, benefiting communities that are overlooked that Mayor Rahm and Mayor Daly never even really attempted to do. So I can't say what they would do in this situation because I never saw them try to under far less trying circumstances even try this there were no affordable housing program to speak of under mayor rom or mayor daly their whole program was to kick poor people out of chicago that was their economic <laughs> development plan oh do we get enough poor down we could justify closing this school oh guess what ladies and gentlemen we have to close this school At you know that's so it's really hard for me to think, how would they deal with I guess is that Rom would try to cut a deal with Florida or the, the governor of Florida, Texas to get him to stop get on the phone. Hey, what's it gonna take to get you to stop sending those buses? I mean, that's the Rom brain at work. Uh, you know, um, if he did one thing, like <laughs> Ron would have a press conference to make him look self look really good. You know what I mean? Because that's the Rom brain at work. Um Mayor Daley, uh, I don't know what he, I mean, uh, he also prided himself on his relations to Republicans. But he never dealt with Republicans quite like this. He got along with the Bushes. The Bushes are far removed from um, Trump or Abbott. Or, but Daley was very proud of his connection. When when uh, George Bush turned 60, he flew to Chicago. This is a little piece of history that just always blows my mind when I think about it uh He flew to Chicago to have his birthday celebration with Mayor Daly. They had it at a restaurant, in the South Loop. Uh, I always felt that there was a deep connection between uh, Daly and Bush, uh, in part because of the role that Bill Daly played in uh, the Florida recount. I think he was he was uh, Al Gore's uh, campaign manager. and he, he wasn't one of the hardcore democrats who said take it to the mat you know he was a little more conciliatory uh and the, so there was that alliance there and then also daly was the mayor daly richard m daly was a big uh, like a supporter of the war or the, uh, the invasion of iraq and when the demonstrators took over lakeshore drive he had those the police came out and arrested them uh en masse and really sent a message to the um to the anti-war committee in chicago about the limitations of their protests and i think george bush always appreciated that so george bush uh flew to chicago at the very point that mayor Daley was being his, his administration was being investigated by the feds so you talk about hey donald trump you talk about intrusion <laughs> political intrusion into an investigation he flew to chicago the president to have- this birthday celebration with uh, Richard M. Daly at the very time the Justice Department was investigating the daily administration corruption. Um,
0: Chicago's so, known for its cuisine Ben. I mean I don't know yeah. I don't know if you're <laughs> missing the the draw here. Uh, there's some really good there's some really good restaurants in the South Loop, even back in the early 2000s. yeah that's, there's no restaurant
1: that makes a cheeseburger like this place. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, so I think that Daly's instincts would be to cut a deal again, stop the buses. What, what's it going to take for us? And so he would denounce the Democrats, you know, the, he would say we need our borders out of control. We have to, we need to build a wall, uh, and in the hopes, like sharing the rhetoric of Trump that would get Abbott to stop sending the buses.
0: Well, as we sit here now, there are parts of the city where not temporary housing, not shelters, but where housing could be built. You could you could try to rebuild some communities that that have properties that have been taken over by the city, properties that should be taken over by the city because they're abandoned. I mean, the opportunities are there. And Lord knows if you're an employer, you know how challenging it can be to find workers these days, there's a labor shortage. I mean, it, I, I grant that I'm sure there are certain places where people are looking for jobs and can't find them as well, but it's a very tight labor market. So uh, it's it certainly the opportunity is there to try to take advantage of the fact that if, these, if people are, are coming to the United States from places that, they, that are too violent to stay, I would hope, I mean, I guess you'd have to interview them on a one-on-one basis as to what they want to do, but I would hope that they're trying to start lives here as opposed to just be dependent. And I can't imagine that their whole purpose was to go through a thousand miles of hell just to sit in a refugee center or a Chicago police department holding center. So uh, yeah, I mean, it, it seems as if there is a, granted it's a challenge, but if all we're doing is spending on you know, Garda world contracts and, and tents. I don't know if that's the most effective way that we could be investing in trying to settle people here.
1: Well, the, the, when I think about it, this is one of the luxuries of having a show where I talk about pol- uh, national, local, and state politics. But there are two basic issues here. One is the, the issue of um, people coming to the United States, seeing the United States as a refuge from whatever political or economic... Horrors are they're facing in their own um, countries, so they come to the United States. They seek refuge here, uh, and then there's the situation of busloads of Venezuelan immigrants being dispatched to Chicago or New York. But let's stick with Chicago to Chicago, a city that's not ready to handle them, to like house them. Uh, there's no Venezuelan community that to really speak of in the city of Chicago, like a Ukrainian community that's going to help absorb residents. You know, like I remember when uh, there were uh, Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union in the in the 1980s. There was a community in Chicago, a Jewish community in Chicago that was very much active in settling, finding housing, finding jobs, finding education. Uh, for the uh, the Jews that were coming from the Soviet Union. Uh, it's a similar thing, I think, with Ukrainians, Poles, Mexicans, where there's established communities in Chicago. So these, this is just a challenge that the city has. The city's never had this challenge in this la- definitely in this century, uh, so they don't know what to do. Uh, and on top of that, you have a new administration that doesn't have complete control of the city apparatus. And um, so, when I look at what past mayors would have done, they would have just looked at it very simple. Jim, we got to stop these busloads from coming in. What do we have to do to stop the
0: busloads? Just stop the inflow first and foremost.
1: Well, let's get Abbott to stop sending them here. We don't care if he sends them to Los Angeles; just don't send them to Chicago. Send them to Seattle. Send them to you know. Daly would probably cut a deal with him somehow or other. Would they all be sent to Washington D.C. or something? Just don't send them to Chicago. That's a classic Chicago Mayor Daley way of doing it. That's how I think you would try to handle it. That's obviously not something uh, Brandon Johnson has thought of doing. I don't. I don't think. Um, so we've moved far afield from uh, the law with this conversation.
0: Well, I mean, as you pointed out, the the law and politics with any of these issues, it, it's intertwined. But uh, so. We had the coincidental uh, good fortune to have had an interview just the beginning of this week with each other, where we began the show by talking about Chicago's renowned football team, the original (laughs) NFL franchise. So interesting week. Uh, The Bears had a short week, went to Washington, of all places, and actually managed to bounce back after a complete second half collapse with blowing a 21 point lead. It's hard to do in the NFL, but you can do it. But picking yourself up off the turf and going out and playing well on the road was actually kind of impressive. And they managed to do it on the day that Dick Butkus died. I was going to ask you, as a sports fanatic, I think you'd be in the right age range. Do you have a favorite Dick Butkus memory?
1: Oh, my goodness. I have so many Dick Butkus memories. So if I had a, a favorite, I guess it's the extra point he caught, he caught uh, to win a game. Bears won one by one point. I can't remember the team they were playing. The Bears kicker was trying to kick a one point uh, extra, extra point, and uh, Bobby Douglas was the holder. The ball, he fumbled the ball, or it was a bad snap. He retrieved it and uh, he threw it into the end zone. I don't know. Dick Buckus was playing uh, on the uh, special teams. He was on the special team. Man, that's a football player.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and he caught the pass. <laughs> he was an old fullback, I think
0: back in the day so he sneaks uh, through there and then and realize it has the wherewithal to turn around and and try to catch a pass
1: yeah you could find it um i remember watching it in real time and just going nuts when he did it <laughs> uh but I, I happened to see it somebody posted it i saw a replay of it uh and uh, that's why it's fresh in my mind and when he catches the ball it like he just it's such a different era he just holds it out like yeah, got it <laughs> Uh, and this this opposing player bats it away so angry. <laughs> uh, that just, I don't know, for some reason, just Dick Butkus being Johnny on the spot for that uh, is my favorite Dick, Dick Butkus memory. May you rest in peace. The great Dick Butkus, number 51. I'll tell you this, uh, Jim. Uh, this just shows you how uh, devoted and dedicated Bears fans are. Uh, they, one of the uh, the articles uh, commemorating Dick Buckus, I think it was Mark Potash's in the Sun-Times, uh, broke down the record of the Bears teams during the Buckus era. Uh, and uh, this is before you were born, so you you weren't wasting your time watching Bears games yet. <laughs> uh, and um, they were terrible, Jim. Two of the greatest Bears, in my humble opinion, of all time, Gale Sayers and Dick Buckus, they played together I uh, just they're the top three is uh, Peyton won uh, and say well you could whoever order you want I guess I would go Peyton Sayers, butt it's just my personal favorites uh, but hey, I think everybody would agree Peyton's the best the greatest uh and um but they were the teams were terrible huh. forget going to the Super Bowl they didn't even, they weren't even, they I think the best record he had uh was like I forget who it was Nine and five, most days, it was 14 games. It's just some, everything else was losing. He lost more than he won. He's still a legend. Uh-huh. It, just goes, it underscores a larger point that I make that you'll, you, you will one day come to realize because you're a lot younger than me. Like the winning is no matter how passionate and angry we get, and I'm always thrashing things when they lose. <laughs> it's really irrelevant to, as time goes on, they're kind of the, like the characters who played. And so, like, I have this tremendous reverence for Dick Buckus, uh and Gail Sayers. They mostly lost, but they just gave everything. Dick Buckus, like, gave up his body.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: did Gail Sayers for the Bears on behalf of Bear fans. Everything they had, they broke down their bodies. How can you not love them? And, um you know, the Cubs, they were. <laughs> They were either awful or blowing it, uh, which is a different kind of awful. And you get that. How could you not love Ernie Banks, who, you know, let's play too. Or Ron Sano, who had such a passion about the game. Or Billy Williams, who was so dignified and uh, just so consistent and steady. Uh, and a great hitter, just a master of the game of hitting. Or Fergie Jenkins, one of the greatest pitchers you can imagine, just throwing nine-inning complete games yeah they didn't win who cares it's like they gave us so much and so I feel that way about a lot of Chicago athletes uh and Dick Buckus is one of them you know yeah they never won anything to speak of but man he gave everything he had and he was a great player and
0: yeah I only got to see highlights but he just looks ferocious you know just throwing guys around so must not have had a lot around him if they were losing a lot of those games, unfortunately.
1: Same problem. No no quarterback, no offensive one. Nothing ever changes with the Bears. It's,
0: that sounds disturbingly familiar. Well, listen, very uh, appreciative of the fact that you can make the time today, Ben. Six years ago, I'd never been on a radio show before, and you invited me on sight unseen. Actually, we had a little bit of a conversation beforehand, but you were willing to take a gamble and figure out if I might be able to add some value to your show. And a few months ago, we had a conversation about, you know, things that I was interested in doing in the media, and you encouraged me to do this. So uh, I very much appreciate that you've you've sort of nudged me in the right direction and, and uh, helped me get going with this as well. So uh, it means even more to have you on the show, so I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Jim. Appreciate it. No problem. My pleasure. All
0: right. Well, that is this episode of Coogan Knows the Law. I'm Jim Coogan. You can find our firm at cgtrial.com. And as always, it is produced by Ear for Audio.